Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch. No preamble. My guest this time is the brilliant Homeland and Billions actor Damien Lewis. We met up for our virtual lunch about six weeks before we all learned of the death far too young of his fabulous wife, Helen McCrory. Statement of obvious, Damien and Helen had kept her illness private, so when we spoke, I, like the rest of the world, knew nothing about it. We can only express our heartfelt condolences for his terrible, terrible loss. Subsequently, we checked in with Damien and he was happy for this episode to be released. So here we are, talking about acting, ambition, accents and a whole bunch more. It's a great chat and a seriously good lunch too. Let's get into it. Hello, Damien. Hi, Jay. Hello. It is a delight to see you. So a big cardboard box has turned up at your door. A nice white box with a, yes, with a pistachio and gold emblem on the front. Does it say where it's from? It says Claridge's. It is from Claridge's. Now, in lockdown, uh, Claridge's have been doing deliveries. My wife's just delivering more mine coming, in. Oh, there's more coming. But they don't normally do takeaway. Normally it's to cook at home. But I said, really, for out to lunch, that doesn't really work. So you have a ready-to-eat takeaway from Claridge's. Well, that's amazing. Shall I tell you what you've got in there? Yeah. There's a game terrine. Yeah. I'm hoping you don't mind a game terrine. No. A steak and mushroom pie. Mm-hmm. And then there is the one thing you actually did say you liked. Yes. Which was sticky toffee pudding. Unbelievable. We better save this for the end so I'm not asleep before we finish. I believe it was delivered by a liveried man as well, almost a, almost a butler. Amazing. What surprises. Thank you. This is a new one for me because this one comes with a napkin as well from Claridge's. I don't know if you found the napkin. I'm sitting at my desk eating Claridge's with a, a freshly ironed linen napkin across my lap. Even the boxes have got these um, <laughs> little little ink drawings, you know, like uh, it could be sort of E. Shepherd who, who just scribbled on these boxes for Claridge's before they were sent out. While you're unwrapping that, I have to say, one yeah. of the things we're, we're always interested in on Out to Lunch, or I'm interested in, is, is the way that sitting at a table and breaking bread with people sort of lubricates conversation. Famously, you were invited to dinner at the White House with Barack Obama. Yeah. Did you find the fact that it was a dinner relaxing? Or, or were you just, your other half, Helen McCrory, also an actress of this parish, were you, were you nervous? Was it strange? First of all, we, we were looking for our... Our, our names on the um, on the plasma on the board as we walked in, and you know there were four table plan four hundred people at this thing, and um, so we started looking at tables, you know, by the toilets, thinking well we'd just be stuck in a corner somewhere, and we couldn't find our names, so we had to ask someone to come over. So could you just explain where we're sitting? Sorry, we can't see ourselves. And she pointed straight to table number one and said, "You're sitting there," and we nearly fainted, and then walked through the entire marquee on the south lawn of the White House to find ourselves sitting, me directly opposite uh, President Obama and Mr Cameron, and next to Warren Buffett on one side, and on my other side, the wife of an Afghan war hero. In the heat of battle, he had jumped over a wall to rescue fallen soldiers in front of him whilst taking fire and then dragging them back. And as he was dragging them back, he's an enormous man, this guy. 
like a sort of superhero, one man over each shoulder. He got hit in the leg and then he got hit in the arm and he it was a bit like a Monty Python sketch, you know. He was just sort of just a flesh wound by the time he actually <laughs> got back to the behind the safety of the wall. You know, he was in he'd been torn to shreds and as a result he had this bionic arm. He'd been given some incredible medal and 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 I was sitting there, Did it ever occur to you at that point that they were slightly trolling you? Because there you were, um, an actor who had played the part of a war hero who did similar things, and they sort of sat you next to one who'd actually done the thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, th- yes, so this is what they actually look like, not like your pale imitation of one. Am I allowed to start? You are. Just start. Just start. Where do you think the Cumberland, Cumberland sauce... That looks good. I think you can put Cumberland sauce wherever you like. So it's, it is a, a game terrine, isn't it? It's going on my terrine. This is not the first time that we've... No. Uh, I, I went back and looked at it. It was 19 years ago, almost exactly. Really? That I interviewed you for The Observer. 19 years God, ago. God, it's a long time ago. It bloody is. You weren't quite launched onto the world at that point because I think we were waiting for Band of Brothers. I mean, you already were a successful actor. How's it been? Can you encapsulate 19 years since then? Last 19 years. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't really need you to encapsulate them. Let but... me start. No, Jay, you asked. 2002. <laughs> now, yeah. um, to begin at the beginning, I've been very lucky. I think the only sort of headline of that in terms of you know, career, um, because I got married and to a beautiful woman and have two gorgeous children and I'm very happy and all of that, without knowing it, Band of Brothers was right at the vanguard of what everyone has now called this golden age of TV. Band of Brothers and The Sopranos, The Wire a couple of years later, were all from that period. It gave me an entree into all the best telly of the next of the next 10, 20 years. And I've and I've just and I've been very lucky as a result. It is extraordinary because obviously these three key things, and we've done lots of other stuff as well. So you've got Band of Brothers, you've got Homeland, and then you've got Billions. When you finally did Dreamcatcher, the Lawrence Kasdan film. Yes. You discovered that doing a big movie, unlike doing television, was hurry up and do fuck all for a very long time. It was a process you am I right, you didn't necessarily enjoy. I was green. I, I I was ambitious. I wanted to do well. I wanted to work with great people. But I found myself thrown into a Hollywood experience that wasn't even in Hollywood. It was in Vancouver. I felt isolated and like it wasn't my world, weirdly. It took a very long time and I was frustrated by it. I was quite lonely. I sort of came home with my tail between my legs a little bit, just sort of thinking... Fuck that for a game of soldiers. I, I want to be active. I don't... And Larry Kasdan put it very eloquently. He used to say actors on film sets, on big films, anyway, are like, you're like an athlete. You're like the guy who's got to run the 100 metres. But the marathon went on too long and then there was a rain delay on the shot put and you're sitting in your <laughs> changing room and you're waiting for 4pm in the afternoon before you come out, you spend your 10 seconds on the track. Or eight and a half if you're any good. And that's it. And then you go back into your trailer. Uh, you've got to stay primed and ready and sort of game ready and focused and, I don't know, I think I wanted to work more. I wanted to work harder than that. Um, I found it a slightly bloated experience, is is the truth. Although there were great people involved. I came back and I did the Foresight Saga for TV, which I was very, very happy to do. It was a, 
beautifully produced and, and put together production and I was very happy. If one looks at your, you know, IMDB list, which I'm sure you do nothing else but look at your own IMDB list. Of course, of course. Um, the one that now sticks out is that you did do uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Tarantino. Uh, it's a small but absolutely beautiful cameo. Mm. Was that why you took it? Or is it because you've always admired Steve McQueen and <laughs> people have always said you look like him? A slightly sort of conflicted answer to all of this. When I came out of drama school and I stood on the prow of a P&O ferry going to Amsterdam with a mate in our sort of titanic moment, in our clinch, and we, we were young kids, 20 years old, and just sort of shouting into the wind, we're going to change British theatre, and we just wanted to be in theatre. That was really, that was the ambition. I didn't grow up as a cineast. I didn't grow up wanting desperately to be in film and... Even before Banner Brothers, I started to see people sort of go off and do these things that I thought weren't really within my rights to expect to be able to do. And people were going off and making big movies. I thought, God, how the hell did they do well, that? R- just, remind me who you, who you well, were at, at Guildhall with. Daniel well, Craig was there, wasn't he? Daniel was there and um, Ewan McGregor was there. and We were all in different years, but it didn't matter. I was close enough and Joseph Fiennes and... And they're all lovely guys. I just wanted to go. I just wanted to go to the RSC, and I did go to the RSC. I very quickly just realised there was a there was a bigger canvas out there, and I learnt about the camera. I learnt more about film, and then you develop heroes. And it was all through that period of time that Quentin Tarantino became Quentin Tarantino. You know, it was only ninety five or ninety six when he made Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. I forget which. You know, precisely the time I came out of drama school. So. You know, I was looking at those things going, that guy's fantastic. Well, I remember watching Reservoir Dogs and just thinking, this is, uh, this is, this is brilliant and not like a film I've seen before. And, uh, but no notion of how I might ever come into the same orbit as him in order to be in one of his films. It felt very separate, very American, very remote. When, when McGregor landed that part in Shallow Grave, which was his big breakthrough thing and it must have been bloody quickly after he left drama school was there a kind of mexican wave from the rest of you or was it kind of how the hell did that happen i remember him saying at drama school i don't really want to do theater i want to be a film star i was able to ask him a couple of years ago made a film star, so how did that go for you Ewan? i mean <laughs> i thought he just went and made train spotting and that was it but yeah it was shallow grave was first but yeah but you know and then he made train spotting it was just like holy crap I mean, he's, he's just, that, that's, that is a seminal film for our era. I was five, six, seven years behind that in my thinking. I went to drama school to be in the theatre. Before I go on to another question, I have done my smoked salmon. I don't know how you're getting on with your terrine. My terrine's I've got gone. A lank- that's it. Well, Vanished. should we move on to pie? Oh, my God. Should we move on to pie? Yeah. So I've got a Lancashire hot pot because I tried to, you know, mix it up a bit. Well, why didn't I get the Lancashire hot pot? Because I thought I'd give you this. You're not going to do this, are you? I had to make a judgment call, oh, so I got you the steak pie. Oh, steak and mushroom pie. Thanks a lot, Jay. This one comes in a little pot. Yeah, mine's in a in one of those oblong dishes. Well, you get an oblong dish out of this as well, then. I'm not going to lie. Mine looks delicious. So does mine. 
So during lockdown, have you, were you filming Billions or has the whole thing been completely closed down since the beginning of 2020? I was in New York filming when, when everything went into lockdown and uh, I got out actually just three days before and then got back here and a week later we were all in lockdown here. My story's been the same as everyone else's since. Not entirely, because both you and Helen got very, very involved in a campaign raising money to feed or provide meals for people in the NHS. How much was raised? We rose, raised over one and a half million pounds and by the end of it were feeding 40,000 meals a day to 100 different hospitals across the UK. It had started just with a conversation with a pal here and he just said, uh, look, we're good at looking after patients but we're crap at looking after our own staff. Can you think of any way we can feed them? I knew one of the founders of Leon, and I know that Leon is popular with people. And um, Helen and myself became friendly with John Vincent. And he happened to be doing something down in Brighton at the time and thinking about how to do the same thing. And so we all just came together. And he's great friends with Matt Lucas. So us four sort of clubbed together to 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 try to raise money. That's, that's what we did. And uh, we're very proud, actually. It was hard work. Hard work, I would say. I mean, that stuff is very hard work. Um, this pie, by the way, having moaned about it, is absolutely yeah. delicious. Excellent. Claridges. Claridges. Yeah. Claridges. Where my wife and I spent our wedding night. So this is perfect. Jane. I didn't know that, actually. I absolutely almost, didn't know that almost you and like spent it there. You and I are in flagrante over our pies. <laughs> um, we are. Hi there, I'm Ollie. I'm the executive producer on Out to Lunch. And this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Imagine you had the time it takes to have lunch. Gifted to you each day, an extra hour. What would you do with that time? For me personally, after listening to Out to Lunch in a swanky new restaurant, I'd love to spend more time actually sampling the food there myself. Now, a lot of us wish we had more time. But in reality, if something is really important, then we make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. It can help you clear your head and take control of your life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Plus, it's entirely online to save those precious minutes. With over a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. That's betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Did you find that kind of activism interesting? I found it fascinating. Logistically, it was it was complicated. bloody nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm very, very glad we did it, but I'm full of admiration 
for people who give their time to working in the charity sector. Because yeah. it's amazing, actually, how difficult it is sometimes to give your money away. You say, yeah. we've got a million and a half pounds here and we'd like to put it there, there and there. Is it? Oh, sorry, you can't do that. You think everyone's being you know, obtuse and then it's explained to you, you know, ev- there's a system. Everyone's got a system and you have to, you have to go through and mm-hmm. jump through the hoops. As we're talking about money, I do have to talk to you about billions, which has been the backbeat of the past few years. Um, I understand that when you were getting ready to do that, you actually went and sat down with some hedge funders to find out what, what they were like. What were they like? The first obvious thing to say is they're all individuals and different. Certainly physically, in the way they present themselves. Some wanted to be in a £4,000 suit with a $2,000 haircut and, you know, the Maserati and the, and the Rothkos and the Gogans hanging in the office. And some just wanted to be in, in tracky bums and unshaven and wanted their office to look the same way. All of them as rich as each other, you know, multi-billionaires. They were quite cautious, all of them. Uh, they wanted to listen. They were very keen to stress the importance that gambling is mitigated always, that uh, analysis is um, specific and detailed and scientific, and then you make your investment or do whatever it is you're going to do. Having been in and around the world for the last five years, I now know a little bit more about what analysis means, and it means running as close to the line legally as you possibly can by gaining any kind of information you can. Um, without give, being an insider dealer? Without being an insider dealer. To give you what they call as the edge. Just that's what it's referred to, the edge. And they'll do everything they can. We've seen a bit of this um, recently in the news. You get um, what, what are called um, specialist consultants. I think I've paraphrased that. But essentially specialist consultants and they're separate groups. It's exactly what happened in, for example, all the News of the World scandal with the hacking. You know, how do you get your information? Well, you go to these private dick companies and these private dick companies have set themselves up as specialist consultants who can go and get information for you. And it's all technically legal. And that's exactly how it was all working in the dark pools of, of high finance. You've done three roles where you played an American, a very specific accent so when you're doing band of brothers it was i want to say pennsylvania mennonite i think you compared it to a canadian accent and then bobby axelroyd is straight out of queens i don't do you do you listen to many of the interviews you do on radio and podcasts or do you tend not to listen this is a leading question i I don't want to make this seem like a stunt but there's something i want to play you which we clipped this morning i don't listen very often uh, is is the truth of it so let's have Desert Island Disc first. This is you on Desert Island Disc in 2014. Well, it was it was an unforgettable night. Helen and I were rather amazed to be there in the first place and we're fully expecting to be sat by the revolving door. There were 400 people there. Right, so that's um, Desert Island Disc. And this is Sunday sit-down with Willie Geist. <laughs> and what's so great, what they've done brilliantly this season, it, this isn't just about Chuck and Bobby just butting heads endlessly because I think I think that would run the risk of becoming repetitive. So that was 2018. You were you were living in Brooklyn while you were filming Billions. You're not shooting. You're doing an interview as Damien Lewis, but you have an American accent. 
Well, I would say that isn't an American accent. Otherwise, I I would not have. It's been not in. the same accent as the man on Desert Island Disc in 2014. That's for sure. I wish my son was here and my daughter. They are infuriated with the way that I adopt an American accent when I'm talking to Americans, um, and I do it. I do it in front of them, and it's not conscious, and it's a bit sponge-like when I played the first American. I've played many more Americans than just those three, actually, but they were the big sort of TV American roles I've played, I guess. The other one is Homeland, by the way. I'm not sure I said that, but the other one is Homeland, obviously. Yeah, I I assumed you meant Homeland. But but the films I've made and Band of Brothers and Homeland, I stay in an American accent all day long. That was partly to do with lack of confidence in myself just to go in and out of an English and American accent. And I didn't want to have to do the work of sort of getting back into accent and character. And if I stayed in an American accent all day long, that transition was easier. And also, I think I I was always aware of being a Brit playing Americans, especially on Band of Brothers, which was one of the most hyped TV series of all times. And all these young American lads, all of whom are good pals now, arrived in England absolutely pumped. You know, they'd been in the gym, they'd been working out and they were ready. You know, Spielberg and Hanks were launching this big thing and they wanted to know who the fucking Limey was that was going to play this hero who, who none of them had ever heard of. I'd been on Broadway, you know, four years earlier. That was it. I think to put people at ease around me a lot of the time, I chose to stay in an American accent. Isn't it the case that all of you did a whole variety of different American accents on that. And eventually the studio at one point had to say, could we possibly sort out which American accent we're going to be doing here? Yeah, I think it did. the first few rushes went back to HBO and they said it's like the Tower of Babel. We can't, <laughs> it's like everyone's speaking different bloody language. It's like, you know. I'm moving on to dessert here. So I thought a brownie would just be a brownie, but I've got a full cake. I don't know if you can see this, Damien. Wow. And you should have, as you requested, a sticky toffee pudding. My God, I'm going to enjoy my siesta. Now, there is one subject that you and I have to discuss, because in a way it's the reason that we're talking all together, which is music. Uh, yes. Because we are, yes. We, are, yes. we are linked through a team of uh, what I regard as some of the greatest musicians working in Britain today. This is a, um, a band called the Kansas Smitties. They described themselves as the house band of a bar that doesn't yet exist. Then they had the bar. And now for the whole of lockdown, pretty much, they've been broadcasting from a site off Brick Lane. They are jazz, essentially, but they all walk the line and they play everything from the old music and make it sound fresh, by which I mean Ellington and Armstrong and the Kansas City sound, right up to very modern stuff. And you've been doing some work with some of them. Clearly, music is an important part of your life. Damn. That sticky toffee pudding, oh my god, those! Oh, it's good. Um, music is an important part of my life. It's just glorious luck that I've been thrown together with Giacomo Smith and the Kansas Smitties band. The three I've worked most with: Giacomo, Dave, and Joe. Dave Archer and Joe Webb, guitarist and pianist. It happened in the most improbable way. I used to be a busker before I became an actor. And I did it not because I was going on to be a professional busker, but because I learned the guitar. I learned a whole load of songs. I used to play in the tube. There was nothing cutting edge about what I did at all. If you wanted to hear Hotel California, I play Hotel California. You know, if you want to hear a, a Beatles song or, you know, um, a David Bowie song, I, I, I play it to you. You know, and then I bought a motorbike and, and then I used to go down and I used to busk in the south of France and Spain and 
put my hat out in front of the Georges Pompidou in Paris or down on a square in Aix-en-Provence or Avignon, wherever. And I would just bike on through the Pyrenees and I would busk on my way through. And I had beautiful, beautiful times doing it. I did it in the summers. And um, I never got any better at the guitar because as long as I could bash out about 60 tunes loudly over a hat and people would bring me beers from the, you know, from the good patrons of the local restaurant. Living the dream. Yeah, you know, then I was, then I was happy. Cut to about six or seven years ago, I was talking to some people about doing a musical. I had done one musical. I'd done Into the Woods at the Donmar Warehouse and they asked if I'd like to go on the uh, Joe Stilgo show. Joe had a jazz show, jazz and blues show on Radio 2. And I said, sure, I'll go and, go and sing one of the songs. It was a song from me and my girl, 1930s jazz standard. I mean, I was completely out of my league. Keris Matthews was there. Tim Minchin was there. Joe was doing his thing on the piano, as obviously was Tim. And I sang my little song. And in the audience, because he's married to Keris Matthews, it's a nice man called Steve Abbott, who is a manager, agent, everything sort of been in the music business for a long time and he said uh, oh you can sing a bit and I said well in the shower and he said um, do you want to noodle around a bit and see what happens so, so we noodled around a bit but what happened is essentially I was in the middle of doing Homeland and all these other sorts of things and I took off and I think no one thought really that there was time to do it and that I would commit to it and then there I am back on my guitar playing the same crappy old three chord songs uh, in lockdown trying to keep myself entertained, Steve just popped into my head. I thought, I'd, I still like to play some music. I wonder if he would still be interested. I gave him a call. He said, that's extraordinary. I just emailed someone at Decca about you yesterday. I said, well, this is very weird because we hadn't spoken to each other for five years. And here I am. An hour later, he said, I think I know what I want to do with you. Yes, I still want to do it. I want you to meet this guy called Giacomo, who's inexplicably talented and wants to make fun music. We've been noodling around for the last six, seven, eight months, having a really fun time. And you are a huge fan of theirs. And he introduced us and that's why we're here. Yeah. I think it was either just before Christmas or just after you uh, you appeared with the Kansas Smitties. It was one of their big band outfits. They must have been about 10 strong. Joe Webb on the piano, two drummers, um, Will Downs on keyboards, and you did a you you sang such a night, the Doctor John song. It's really good, and we're going to post the link to that video beneath this. Were you having as much fun as it looked? I was very nervous because, as I've explained to you, I am a really ordinary busker. What we have tried to do is create a little bit of that New Orleans, I suppose, bar sound, where it's where it just feels like people are having a good time together. And, well, um, well, that's that's exactly what you get from it because it is it's it's a big band and they're very very good musicians. They're also very welcoming musicians, I would say. They've been incredibly kind to me. We've introduced different songs to each other. You know, Doctor John. I mean, he's the he's the you know he's the apogee of that. You know, that sort of just laid back, slightly smacked out of my head. I had a piano lesson with Doctor John. You didn't? I can't believe it. What's he, what's he like? What's he like? Well, he, he was, he was. I think he was quite clean at the time. He was off the smack. They'd approached me to say, would you like to interview him? Because I know you like uh, blues piano. I said, yes, I'd like to interview him over a piano. And so I went to Rack Studios. Uh, and there was his nine-foot um, Yamaha Grand. And there were all the people around. Uh, the photographer took some pics. And then everybody said, right, well, we're going then and we'll leave you to it. That's amazing. 
Actually, the, the really striking thing, I, I found myself wondering whether having reached such a point of success in TV and knowing exactly what you're doing there, part of the appeal is being slightly out of out of your comfort zone. I'm, I'm too much of a coward to want to be out of my comfort zone too much. I need a bit of pushing and shoving and reassuring that this is worth it, what we're all doing together, because we've put together a bunch of songs now and there's yeah. there's chat of maybe trying to put some tracks down in a recording studio and you know, and seeing if there's something there that people might want to listen to. So I go very cautiously because I am, when it comes to creative choices like this, I am cautious. Of course, they will be lining up to take shots as I stick my head above the parapet because no one is an easier target than than an actor who, who, who thinks he can be a bit of a musician. But I don't want to go off and be a, a, a great jazz star or pop star or rock star. I'm an actor. I want to remain in my discipline. This, for me, is something that is just of um, uh, unbelievable value. It's so much fun. What we don't do very well in this country is we don't cross-fertilise across the different arts traditions. And that's a big shame. And I've had some of my favourite times when, for example, I've read out, let's say... um, Bits of Midsummer Night's Dream uh, accompanied by the LSO playing Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream, which was devised as a concert and words piece. Things like that. And you sit around all those musicians when I've done a bit of musical theatre and you get to hang out with musicians and so on and so forth. Little installation pieces that you might do with with art galleries and things like that. They don't take you anywhere. They're not they're not career building things. They're but they're, they're lovely curiosities in their own right and you get to see how all the other artists are working in their own disciplines. It's, um, we, we, we don't, we're slow to do it. Uh, Damien, I have to say thank you. I'm glad we were able to make this work and that we managed to send you a proper lunch. Um, we're both going to go and need to have a lie down now, I think. Um, we are, but, but that all... was delicious. Thank you, Claridge's, very much. <laughs> yes, thank you, Claridge's. All that remains for me to say is thank you for staying in for lunch with me or going out to lunch with me, whichever way round you want to put it. It's it's been great to catch up after nineteen years. <laughs> Jay, well, well done. Keep 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 concentrating, and I I know things will turn around for you soon. <laughs> do, you do you think just, I might I might have a career? You might, yeah, you might just yeah. Keep, keep just well, should keep we catch your head up down. in twenty forty? 2040 would be another 19 years and we can see how it's all worked out for both of us. Be delicious. Thank you, Damien, for taking the time. We do send him all our love. And really, do have a watch of the YouTube video of him singing Such a Night with the Kansas Smitties, which will be on the episode information page. Also, thank you to everyone at Claridge's in London for the specially prepared boxes and the liveried waiters who delivered them. And if you'd like a treat, all outdoor and indoor dining at Claridge's is now open. Just go to their website to book. Um, And if you've enjoyed this, and how could you not, we'd love you to rate us five stars, please, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others to find us. Uh, Do follow us and encourage others to do the same because then you will get new episodes the minute they are cooked. Out to Lunch is a something else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording and mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Jemima Rathbone was assistant producer. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's DJ, broadcaster and now author, it's Annie McManus. I sometimes think that with those top tiers of DJs, there's an ego level where they are treated as demigods, and I don't think they maybe are. <laughs> <laughs>